Well, four weeks ago, we were working our way through 1 Timothy, and we got on a detour, but it was a planned detour. Uh, We reached uh, chapter 2 in 1 Timothy and found there where the Apostle Paul was talking about prayer, and especially church-wide prayer. And I've taken this opportunity to bounce off of there in that passage and and continue to look in other places in the Scripture about church-wide prayer with the idea of us learning as a people from God in his word about being a praying church. And we've reached the last of, uh, of that little mini-series. And, and today I'd like to turn our attention to Acts chapter 12. So turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 12. If you're using one of our Bibles, uh, it's on page 1311. 1311. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. At least I'm going to have fun. I hope you do too. Now, in order to, to, to get the chapter 12 right, you've got to understand a little bit about chapter 11. <clears throat> uh, it's very interesting what's happened in chapter 11 in the first 18 verses. Peter had, God had moved in Peter's life and had brought him to the Gentiles uh, to the non-Jews, and he had associated with them, and God had, had it had taken a vision from God to get Peter over some of his inhibitions on this, and he went to the Gentiles, and he saw people saved, and then he came back, <clears throat> and the Jews heard about this. Uh, you see up there in verse chapter eleven, verse one, it says, "Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God." And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. So there were some problems there. Like, how can these non-Jews be, be right with God? And so there was this big meeting, and Peter talked about what had happened. And look at verse 15. It says, and as, Peter is speaking. It says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, meaning upon the Gentiles he had been with, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This is a big step in their lives and what God is doing in the book of Acts is he's showing how he's come the Messiah came through the Jewish people but the plan was so much broader than that and so now the gospel's going out to everybody <clears throat> the Gentiles meaning the nations the non-Jews everyone now is included then the story in chapter 11 verse 19 shifts to a place called Antioch Antioch was up the coast it was outside of Israel Uh, It says in verse 19, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So what's happening here is now the Antioch church has been born. It's been planted. Now this is a church that's not just Jews 
but Gentiles and maybe even more Gentiles than Jews. And things are changing, but the gospel is going out. And God's plan is moving forward. Barnabas, well, the church down in Jerusalem hears about this. This is the rest of chapter 11. And they send Barnabas up to check and say, what's going on up there? And he saw what was going on and he was excited. And then he went and found Saul, who would become Paul, the apostle Paul. He got Paul and brought Paul into the church in Antioch. And there they were. And you see that in verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is where the Christians were first called Christians, was there in Antioch. So the story is going along and the focus is on now on Antioch and what's happened in Antioch. And chapter 12 becomes like a parenthesis. It's like a little detour the author takes and then he comes back to Antioch. But he gets us to this parenthesis in the end of chapter 11. A prophet prophesies and says there's going to be a famine and the people of God in Judea are going to be in trouble. So they took a collection in Antioch and sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem with this gift. So now the attention goes to Jerusalem. And that's where the story starts in chapter 12. And But as you'll see, then it comes back to Antioch in chapter 13. So let me read here, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he's... Apparently he was a sound sleeper because that wasn't enough. He had to actually knock him one. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. He he thought he was seeing something or it was a dream or something. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. It's kind of amazing. That happens to us all the time. You know, we have these automatic doors. They didn't have that back then. So he walked, this gate just opens. This isn't a movie now. This is actually happening. And they went out and along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now 
I know for sure that the Lord has set, sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, I mean, I'm sure she was listening in to the praying. She was part of the praying. They were praying for Peter. She heard Peter's voice, verse 14. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. You got to love it. She forgets to let him in. She's so excited. She turns around and runs. Peter's here. He's actually not here yet. He's still standing in the street. Interesting, isn't it? That it's just interesting that God used His angel to get him out of prison, but Peter still had to stand by that door and wait till somebody opened it. God, God's plans are His plans. But anyway, verse fifteen. They said to her, "You are out of your mind." But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's, it's his angel, whatever that meant. It's kind of like, well, it couldn't really be him, 16. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be, to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James And the brethren, now that's a different James there, obviously, than the James who had been put to death. That was James the apostle who had been killed. This is James the brother of Jesus that um, here, who became a leader of the church in in Jerusalem. So that's that James. Uh, He says, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, when day came... I love the way Luke writes this. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Talk about an understatement. He says, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. <laughs> if we understand the, the historical records right, they, had, they, you know, they said there were four squads of soldiers, so they took turns. So there was four at a time, and they would each have a post for three hours. So none of them would get tired. And fall asleep or whatever. And they had two of them on the side of Peter and they were apparently handcuffed. They were chained to the soldiers. He was one on one side, one to the other. And then there was another one at one door and another soldier at the other door. And there was no back door. So when whatever this angel induced stupor came back off of the guards, you can imagine it says there was no small disturbance. What happened? You know, where is he? <laughs> what about the other guys? What about the 12 guys that were taking their turns? <laughs> I mean, they're all in this together. Can you imagine? What did you guys do? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? How can he be gone? Look at verse um, 19. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away. To execution. Yeah, the, the, the verse here actually, it's in the Greek, it says they would be led away. And the, the, um, the, the import of that is that they were going to be executed. So these 16 men get killed. 
And then he went down from Judea, this is Herod, to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now there's a span of time going on, but now listen what happens. Now he, Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. It's exciting. So that's the end of the parentheses. Now watch. The story then goes back to Antioch. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. First chapter 13. Now there were at Antioch and the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, and then it continues the story. This is an amazing passage. And I want us to see in this passage three lessons for a praying church. Three lessons for a praying church. The first, and I trust that this will be encouraging to you. The first lesson is this. Small faith and unanswered questions do not prevent fervency and answered prayers. Did you hear that? Small faith and unanswered questions do not prevent fervency and answered prayers. Look at chapter 12, verse 5. You see, um, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So here are the people, and they're praying, and they're praying for Peter. James has just been killed says he was put to death with a sword. Some take that as meaning that he was beheaded. It's quite possible. So James, the apostle, has been killed. Peter's next. The people are praying. They're praying for Peter. And then you see in verse 12 again. It says that when he was released, he came. And it says many were gathered together and were praying. And yet... When Rhoda tells them that Peter's at the door, in verse 15, they say to her, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. So there they are praying for Peter, and the answer comes, and they can't believe it. And then when they finally open the door, it says they were amazed. Anybody ever been amazed when God's actually given you what you were asking for? Or is it just me? No, there's somebody, an honest person. Yeah, okay. Don't be embarrassed. This, these are, this, this isn't a made-up story. The reason this story is so good is we see ourselves in it. It's so true. That we pray and pray and God answers and we're blown away by it. And it's like, wait, that's what I was asking for. Weak faith. 
There was or small faith. Their faith wasn't everything it should have been, but they were still praying. Amen. They were still there praying, even though their faith wasn't really what it ought to have been. And there was unanswered questions in all of this. You know, in in verse 2, it says that James was executed. Now, what's... Did James do something wrong? We, We don't know that. James is beheaded. Peter is delivered. Why was Peter delivered and not James? Why? Why why didn't God deliver them both? Or why did God have why wasn't Peter executed first and then James delivered? Why? We don't know. We don't know the answer to any of those questions. And isn't this true about our own lives that as we wrestle with God in prayer and we bring to God issues in our own lives, we don't always have the answers, do we? We don't have the answers often. But the unanswered questions that bother us or at least puzzle us and the, um, the smallness of our faith ought not to prevent us from praying because even though they didn't know all the answers and even though their faith wasn't as big as it should have been, they were still there praying and God answered them. Amen. God answered them. It reminds me of Mark chapter nine. If you want to turn there, you can, but this is, we, we were looking at this when we went through the book of, of Mark, Mark chapter nine, verse 17. Jesus had had, uh, just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He had come down and and there was a great crowd around the disciples because um, someone had had brought his demon-possessed boy to them and they couldn't couldn't get him delivered. Verse 17 says, And one in the crowd answered Jesus, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, meaning when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, now Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. You know, the precious, one precious truth about that scripture, that passage there is that he's saying to Jesus, I, I've got some unbelief in me, but I've got belief in me too. And, but where was he? He was at the feet of Jesus. 
he was in the right place. He hadn't left. His lack of faith or his weakness of faith hadn't turned him away from Jesus. He's still there with Jesus, beseeching Jesus, and Jesus answers his prayer and delivers his son. Amen? Small faith and unanswered questions don't have to prevent you from praying and seeing God answer. You don't have to think that you can't participate in God's plans for this, for the Lehigh Valley and the world through prayer because you've got unanswered questions in your mind. You don't have to think that way. That's the way life is. But as long as you're like that man with his son, as long as you're there at the feet of Jesus, you're in the right place. And he will lead you and he will listen to you and he will answer. He will answer. Second lesson for a praying church. And that is this, that the work of prayer requires effort. The work of prayer requires effort. Now we're back to chapter 12 of of Acts. You know, up there in verse 12, when Peter had been got, he had been rescued by the, the angel. He says he went to this house and says where many were gathered together and were praying. Those people there in verse 12, they had taken the time and the effort to deny themselves sleep. This is in the middle of the night. And they had gone probably semi-secretly to this, this house. They're gathered together there and they were praying. That took effort. They had to go to the trouble to do that. It didn't just happen. They had to do it. And then, very interesting, um, in verse 5, look at verse 5, chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. It describes their prayer as fervent prayer. There's one other place where that word is used in reference to prayer. And that's in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it says that Jesus withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw. This is actually the same author. It's Luke writing this. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. That's the word. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. There's that example of fervent prayer. And now here in chapter 12 of the book of Acts, we find the people, the church gathered together to pray. And the same word is being used to describe them. Fervent, fervent prayer. This isn't just uh, the reading of some prayers that are written in a book without any emotion. This isn't just... um, some kind of formal praying. These people are, are fervent, crying out to God. And we see this all through the book of the Bible. The whole Bible we see. And when people pray, God's, God moves and, and God moves people to pray. Abraham fell on his face before God. Isaac called on the name of the Lord. Jacob wrestled all night. With the angel. Moses repeatedly sought the face of God, sometimes climbing a mountain to do so. 
Elijah toiled in prayer. Hannah was so overcome in her praying that the priest thought she was drunk. Talk about fervency and earnestness in prayer. David, he complained. He rejoiced. He questioned. He sought. He praised. He feared. All in prayer. The people of Israel, remember in the one prophet's day, they stood in the rain all day seeking God. The New Testament church, we find them huddled in homes at night praying fervently. The work of prayer, when God is in it, it requires effort. It requires effort. An interesting word, too, that speaks of this is in chapter 13, verse 2. Look there. Again, people of the church gathered together. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and then the story goes on. Interesting that it uses that word ministering. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord, what does that mean? Why does it use that word? It means serving. While they were serving the Lord. But it's talking about prayer. By the way, that's where we get the idea of calling what we're doing now a service. Did you know that? You know, we talk about we have an 8.30 service and an 11 o'clock service. Why do we say that? Why do we say it's a service? It's from this. That when God's people get together and pray, they are serving their God. Interesting, isn't it? That God would view it that way. We serve God by praying. Many people don't see prayer that way. Charles Spurgeon said this, The power of prayer can never be overrated. They who cannot serve God by preaching need not regret. If a man can but pray, he can do anything. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. When we pray, we serve God. But that implies, too, that there's effort there. The work of prayer requires effort. It doesn't just happen. And then, while we're in chapter 13, verse 2, notice it says, And fasting, a denying of ourselves, food, fasting in the New Testament, uh, has with it the purpose of, of intensifying our praying. That when we, when we purposefully put aside food for a time, to focus on an issue in prayer, it intensifies our praying. There's nothing magical about it. We don't earn credit with God by doing it. It just helps us pray. The, the purpose is the praying takes effort. It's interesting. On the one hand, nothing is easier than praying. It's like breathing. You just, when I first got saved, I remember I, I was at a meeting. You've heard me tell the story. I won't tell the whole story again, but one night I was at a meeting where I got saved. The next morning I woke up and I started talking to God. Nobody had to tell me how to do it. (laughs) Amen? I just talking to God. So on the one hand, on the one hand, prayer is as natural and as easy as breathing. But on the on another level, Perhaps it is true to say that nothing is harder than prayer. To work with God in prayer is time-consuming. It's full of obstacles. And very few of us know the satisfaction of it as we ought. But we can if we will. 
Are you putting forth effort to pray? That's the question that comes to you and to us from this passage. Are you putting forth energy for your own prayer life? Or are you hoping that, that your praying will become more what it ought to be, but you're not doing any planning to make it that way? It, it won't happen. Oh, yes, the, the natural prayer is there. You're, you're going to pray as you go through your day. But, but the knuckling down and cooperating with God in pushing his purposes forward, that kind of praying, that doesn't happen unless you work on it. The work of prayer requires effort. And thirdly, Let's go to the third and last lesson now for a praying church here. I'll say it a couple times so you get it. But this is, this is what rings out in this passage. God's plan to prosper the gospel will not be frustrated. And our part in that plan involves prayer. God's plan to prosper the gospel will not be frustrated. And our part in that plan involves prayer you see there chapter 12 verse 1 it talks about herod herod the king and he lays hands all those that belong to the church in order to mistreat them and he took james and he had him executed but now look at chapter 20 excuse me chapter 12 verse 20 now after all this has gone on he comes down to caesarea there's a problem with the people of Tyre and Sidon and he has this big, there's apparently there were the games there that, to celebrate the emperor. And it's interesting that this record of his death is, is actually recorded in other historical documents. Let me read to you what Josephus, the old historian said. Listen to this. He says, at Caesarea, says Josephus, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, exhibited shows in honor of Caesar knowing that this was celebrated as a festival for his welfare. There came together for this occasion a large number of provincial officials and others of distinguished position. On the second day of the shows, Agrippa put on a robe made of silver throughout, of quite wonderful weaving, and entered the theater at break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it, and its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed at it. Immediately, his flatterers called out from various directions in language which boded him no good, for they invoked him as a god. Be gracious to us. They cried, hitherto we have reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be more than mortal nature. He did not rebuke them, nor did he repudiate their impious flattery. But soon afterward, a pang of grief pierced his heart. At the same time, he was seized with a severe pain in his bowels, which quickly increased in intensity. He was hastily carried into the palace. And when he had suffered continuously for five days from the pain in his belly, he died in the 54th year of his life and the seventh year of his kingship. The chapter starts with this one who has power resisting the people of God and the progress of the gospel 
even executing one of the leaders, and it ends with him dying a miserable death. And then it goes on. You see verse 24? Chapter 12, 24, that's the verse. So here is Herod with the judgment of God has fallen on him. And in verse 24 says, but, see, it's a contrast to this that's happened to Herod. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Praise God. That's the point of this passage. You see, God's purposes never fail. Plus, the point of the passage is it brings us back to Antioch there at the beginning of chapter 13 and shows us that now they're setting apart Barnabas and Paul and they're sending them as the first missionaries of the church. The gospel just keeps going on. Some commentators ask when they notice that the story in chapter 11 is about Antioch and the story in chapter 13 is Antioch, they ask the question, why did Luke put this passage in? What does chapter 12 have to do with the flow? But I believe that this is the answer. He's showing that nothing is going to stop God's purposes in the progress of the gospel. It's not just me. A Bible scholar named Howard Marshall says this. He says, from Luke's point of view, Luke, remember, wrote the book of Acts. From Luke's point of view, the emphasis would appear to be on the triumphant progress of the gospel, which is not hindered by the death of one apostle or the imprisonment of another. When the church prays, the cause of God will go forward and his enemies will come to naught. Even if this does not exempt the church from suffering and martyrdom, Luke's belief in the victory of the gospel is thoroughly realistic and recognizes that though the word of God is not fettered, its servants may well have to suffer and be bound. God is moving forward. Amen. And nothing's going to stop the progress of the gospel. And in the middle of that picture is the people of God who are praying. We've got to pray, brothers and sisters. We've got to pray. And then, let me just say, there's a really neat little... I just have to show this to you. Especially since I look up there and I actually have time to do this. I was hoping I would. This little tidbit in here that's just dropped in. I just want you to see this. In chapter 13, verse 1. It's naming these five uh, amazing leaders of the church in Antioch. And one of them is named... The last one is called Menaean. And it says, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, what does that mean? Herod, this isn't the same Herod that died. This is his uncle. Okay, so Herod the Tetrarch is the one who beheaded John the Baptist and one who was complicit in the, in the condemnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Herod. As a little boy, he had a playmate who was growing up with him. Two little boys running around in the palace, having fun, probably played with slingshots and stuff like that. His name was Menaean. And in God's sovereignty, one of those little boys grows up to participate in one of the most heinous crimes in history, the execution of Jesus Christ. And the other one grows up and is saved and becomes a leader in the church of God in Antioch. Is that cool? God's purposes are there 
in the, God is there in the midst of those who have power and those who don't. In, 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 in human affairs, God is working and he's moving and he's accomplishing his purposes. And no Herod is going to stop it. Job 42.2 says, I know, he's speaking to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God's purposes move forward no matter what is brought against them. But again, remember, in the midst of it, the church of God is praying. They're praying. Sidlow Baxter said, men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Amen. When we pray, God moves. And so this passage gives us three lessons. Weak faith, number one, or small faith and unanswered questions do not prevent us from praying fervently and seeing answers to prayer. And secondly, though, the work of prayer requires effort. And thirdly, God's plan to prosper the gospel will not be frustrated. And our part in that plan involves prayer. And practically, then, I have to ask you, are you praying? When we call for prayer in times of uh, the Fresh Encounter prayer meetings, come. We're going to have another one in April. Don't, don't stay home. Come and join together with us. And let's pray the purposes of God forward. But then in your own life, are you praying? Let me, let me just offer in closing just this simple little method. You might say, well, I, I can do the praying like just talking to God quickly. But how do I, what's a step I can take to do better, to grow? And this is what I would say. Find a time. Remember, it takes effort. Every day you find a time, morning or evening or afternoon. I don't know when it is. Don't do it when you're working and being paid to do something else. Find a time. You just ask God to give you insight as you read his word. Then you read a little portion of the scripture, maybe a chapter. If you're reading through one of our, I got my, I'm working through the New Testament one this year. So if you got one of these, you read a chapter. And then you as you've read, you, you, maybe something from what you read strikes you and you pray about that for your own life. And then you pray for people. You pray for whoever God brings to your mind. And then you might actually want to start writing those people down. You have a list. And when that list gets a little too big for you to pray for in one day, then you divide it up. I have one list that's divided up into five days, Monday through Friday. And you just pray for the people on your list. Some people are close on your heart that you want to pray for them every day. I do that too. But then others, you, you spread them across the week and you pray through, you pray through the week so that every day you just, you say, Lord, speak to me through your word. You read a chapter in this word. If anything struck you from this chapter, you pray about that for your own life. And then you get your prayer list out and you pray for the people on your list think we can do it think we can do it yes it's really not that complicated but it will take effort but we can do it and as we do it god will answer amen amen so let's let's uh, pray father we bow before you and thank you we thank you for this portion of your word 
and for the lessons that we find in it. And we do ask, O Lord, that you would strengthen our weak faith, our small faith, and give us grace and help us to take the steps that are necessary and make us, O Lord, a praying church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.